Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. If you are in the strange historical fact business, like I am, you are going to happen upon and become familiar with a lot of conspiracy theories. And I have mixed feelings on conspiracy theories. I love them. I hate them. I love them because they are often fascinating exercises in creativity, even if the originators of them do not see their own work as creative. They see them as truth-telling, yet it's often fun to look at them as kind of an exercise in sci-fi fantasy world-building. But I also have a particular loathing for conspiracy theories because they're wrong. I don't like wrong things. I think facts are neat, and there is a lot of truthful stuff out there that is just as interesting as fiction. That's part of why I have this podcast. One of the biggest and most implausible historical conspiracy theories out there, and one that I think is simultaneously charming and amazingly stupid, is the phantom time hypothesis. And that is the idea that certain historical events just didn't happen. Scholars made them up, and there are a few different versions of this idea. One is from the 1700s. It is from a Jesuit librarian named Jean Hardoun, who believed that 13th century Jesuits decided to make up ancient Greece and ancient Rome. They forged a whole bunch of art and statues and literature and philosophy, and they just made up the classical era for fun. So that's one version of it. There's also a Russian conspiracy theorist named Antoli Fomenko, who believed that a lot of historical events were shuffled around and mischaracterized. For example, he thought that the Trojan War and the First Crusade were the same event. He also thought that Arab and Chinese history was made up by Jesuits. Sounds like he's taking a page from Hardun's book there. And Fomenko also believed that Jesus lived in 12th century AD in Turkey. But when people on the internet talk about phantom time, they are probably referring to the most famous version of this conspiracy theory. And that is from a German conspiracy theorist named Herbert Illig, who essentially believed that the Middle Ages weren't real. 297 years, AD 614 to AD 911, never happened. The Middle Ages are fabrications, and 2017, our year, is really A.D. 1720. So Charlemagne? Fake. The beginnings of Islam? Fake. The Age of Vikings? Fake. That big chunk of the Middle Ages? It's gone. Here is how Illig described himself when he was talking about this topic at a conference in Toronto in 2005. He said, quote, I am not a historian in a narrow sense of the word. I did study economics, mathematics, physics, some art history, and Egyptology. My interest in Egyptian culture brought me into contact with Velikovsky's theses. Velikovsky's ideas showed me that the accepted timeline has holes in it like a sieve. In other words, many periods have left so frighteningly little evidence that we must ask, did this particular period ever exist, or did it originate on a desk of scholars? Unquote. 
So that name that Illig dropped, Emanuel Velikovsky, that's kind of a whole other topic. Uh, Velikovsky was the purveyor of pseudoscience and pseudohistory, essentially stating that Earth almost collided with a bunch of other planets and that changed human history somehow. And he tried to prove this with the Bible, of course, and he is not taken seriously by academic scientists or historians. But throughout the 20th century, his books were quite popular. And as somebody who used to work in a used bookstore in hippie-tacular Eugene, Oregon, I can tell you he has fans. Um, Velikovsky's ideas informed Illig's thinking. So Velikovsky's ideas informed Illig's thinking, and Illig believed that the Julian and the Gregorian calendar, the difference between those two would leave a big gap. A big gap. Now, we will get to that later. But he has already determined that some age of human history just didn't happen. That is a conclusion that he is starting with. So when Illig is doing his scholarship, he's not looking at evidence and going for a conclusion. He is starting this conclusion, then working backward and finding evidence. So keep this in mind in this next quote from him from the same Toronto 2005 talk. He says, quote, Now it was a question of making the first thesis plausible. Which period was superfluous? At first glance, it was obvious that the Roman imperial era was very well documented. The Renaissance period before 1582 was also very well documented. Even the Romanesque and Gothic eras looked at from an art history perspective are well documented, with thousands, even tens of thousands of buildings. So, Almost automatically, we hit upon the early Middle Ages. Only here was there darkness. Only here did we find a technical term, Dark Ages. Unquote. So, there is so much wrong with this, and if you are a medievalist and you're listening to this, I am sorry for the anger-induced aneurysm that you probably just had. A few things. First, he begins by saying, making the first thesis plausible. That's not what you do. What you do is you look at evidence, and you develop a thesis, and then you test a thesis, and maybe it's plausible, maybe you throw it out. But you don't work toward a conclusion. That's not how a historian, or a scientist, or a journalist, or anyone else who's working empirically actually does anything. And, medievalist, I can hear you screaming through your aneurysm, uh, Dark Ages is not a technical term. That is not a thing that anyone says with any kind of seriousness nowadays. No one really believes that the early Middle Ages entailed humans in Europe uh, basically experiencing a centuries-long apocalypse. Uh, it wasn't like that. But what is the motivation for a lot of this fabrication? Why would a bunch of scholars go through the trouble of making stuff up and inventing an era and just inserting it into a calendar? Who benefits from this? Who is the puppet master making this conspiracy theory happen? So, according to Illig, our culprits are Holy Roman Emperor Otto III and Pope Sylvester II. Why'd they do this? They did it so Otto III could reign as Holy Roman Emperor during the year 1000. Not be crowned, mind you. Otto III became Holy Roman Emperor in 996... No, just reign through the year 1000. So, the big thing at the end of this conspiracy theory 
It's not power. It's not influence. It's not control. It's not money. It's not being a lizard person. Nope. The big thing that our puppet masters were going for were very large round numbers, which is why I think this is one of the dumbest and most charming and kind of pathetic conspiracy theories of all time. Large round numbers are the end game. So bracket this for a moment. Despite Illig's implausible idea, there are some chunks of missing time in the Gregorian calendar. There are some calendar dates that just straight up didn't happen. Uh, earlier, I mentioned the difference between the Julian and the Gregorian calendar. And when various countries have made the switch, they have had to lose days. The first areas to switch from Julian to Gregorian calendars uh, were areas of what we now call France, Italy, Portugal, Spain, and Poland. Those regions, when they made the jump in 1582, they lost 10 days. Later on in the same decade, in the 1580s, the Catholic areas of Austria, Germany, and Hungary also made the transition, also losing 10 days. It was Catholic regions that led the charge on this because it was Pope Gregory that was all about this new calendar, hence, you know, Gregorian. In 1610, Protestant Germany decide to not let sectarianism get in the way of updating their calendar system, so they also made the switch, and they too lost 10 days. Then we enter an interesting period, because from 1610 until 1752, there is a split between continental Europe and the British Isles. So for over a century, crossing the English Channel meant going back in time for over a week. So you could be 10 days forward on the calendar in France, cross the English Channel, and you've just lost about a week and a half. So presumably, during that time, you could go from France to England and have multiple Christmases, which could be kind of fun. Uh, the UK and its colonies including what is now the United States, uh, didn't switch until 1752. Now, there's a popular myth about that switch. And the myth is that when the United Kingdom made the switch, people were highly annoyed. They took to the streets, they rioted, they demanded that their 11 days be returned, and these events are now called the calendar riots. Unfortunately, they seem to be largely fictional, or rather, Fortunately, if you think rioting in the streets and burning stuff is a bad idea, um, plenty of people in Britain and its colonies were annoyed, but they weren't angry mob pitchforks and torches annoyed. So later on, Japan switched in 1873, but it was probably less disruptive in Japan than in European countries because they already had their own different calendar based on which emperor is reigning when. Uh, Bulgaria, Estonia, Russia, and Greece they all made the transition in the early 20th century. The last country to make the switch from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar was Turkey. They did so in 1927, losing a total of 13 days. This is not nearly as dramatic as 297 years, but it's still not nothing. That still is chunks of calendar that you just skip over, that's just aren't there. That in itself is kind of interesting. But back to Phantom Time, back to Illig. Um, I didn't want to just talk about this to make fun of a crank or point out something goofy, but I also wanted to use it as a mini lesson about 
what good history is? Illig, I already said, starts from a conclusion and works to find evidence to support it, which is not what you should do. Also, like a lot of sort of more old school history scholars, he essentially considers history what's written down. And in the case of Phantom Time, he thinks that the Middle Ages didn't happen because there are not enough written records for his liking, or there aren't enough buildings, or there's not enough art. But we can also get insights into history from other disciplines. We can look to the sciences to corroborate what older texts say. So lots of scholars, monks, scribes, etc., all over the world kept track of astronomical phenomena. They noted things like the phases of the moon, eclipses, and, very importantly, the presence of comets. Halley's Comet passes Earth pretty regularly, and if you work backwards, you can see that past accounts of events noted in multiple regions, those mentions of Halley's Comet match up with exactly where it should be on our calendar. Those old monks and scholars and scribes who saw a thing going across the sky they wrote it down, and we can see that those records were written when they were supposed to be. So that is something I think a lot of historians would do well to keep in mind, to look to other disciplines, like astronomy, and see what they have to offer. And there's another thing. Illig's thesis is inherently Eurocentric. We've all learned, we all know that history is not just Western history, but Illig is basically just concerned with European history here. He doesn't give any consideration whatsoever to anyone else who might have been writing down things during that time period. And plenty of people were writing things down worldwide between 614 and 911. Chinese, Japanese, Arab, and Mayan writings all survive, just to name a few. And they note astronomical events, they note events in their own history, they note encounters with each other and other civilizations. Even if we don't have a big record from Europe, plenty of stuff was still happening. Again, the time period that Illig says didn't happen, that includes the life of Muhammad and initial Islamic conquest, which was a pretty dramatic event for all concerned. So for Illig to be right... This conspiracy pulled off by a Holy Roman Emperor and a Pope would have to reach into the Middle East, across Asia, and over into Mesoamerica, falsifying some very occasionally dramatic events, like founding of religion, and also inventing Mayan writing. So it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. And there's something about the Phantom Time hypothesis that, as much as I find it cranky and charming... I also think it's sort of nihilistic. So I like history that's shrouded in mystery. I like it when scholars have to rely on scraps to know things, when we have to put together puzzle pieces and maybe just have conjectures as opposed to solid facts. One of my favorite ancient civilizations is the Olmecs, and a big part of that is that there's so much we don't know about them. In having that unknown and mysterious history, I like that a whole lot better than just saying hey, none of this stuff is real, it's all a forgery. And as I was writing this episode, I began to feel a little sorry for Illig as well. I think that he's a crackpot, sure, but I also began to wonder what it's like to be in his head, what it would be like to have that kind of subjectivity that believed something that was so demonstrably incorrect. And 
what it's like to look at a global collection of scholarship and information and see it as a threat. When I walk into the library, when I go onto JSTOR, when I look for information from journals and journalists and authors and scholars and academics, I see it as a treasure trove, as a source of riches. But somebody like Herbert Illig, he sees it as something that is all pointed at him, telling him he's wrong. That must be horrifying. And I wonder what we could say to a mind like that that would make it not feel that terror, not feel that horror. And it's surely not something that's evidence-based. There are plenty of evidence-based arguments out there. I'm sure Illig was quite aware of them and they weren't persuasive, but what could a real scholar offer to the conspiracy theorist to say, you don't need to feel threatened by mainstream knowledge? You don't need to feel threatened by what scientists know. You don't need to feel threatened by what historians know. You don't need to feel threatened by the work of truth-tellers. Your phantoms are just phantoms. There's nothing sinister that's being kept from you. There's no mystery that's trying to keep you at a disadvantage. What could we say to the conspiracy theorist so that they would know it's okay. The truth will accept you as well. Come share knowledge with us. I don't know what words we could say or what actions we could take to help somebody who believed in something like phantom time and who probably feels a bunch of imagined fear because of it. But more so than finding conspiracy theories charming or frustrating, I wish there was a way that we could take people who believed in them and bring them into the light. This podcast is completely listener-supported. It exists because of you. I don't read ads. I don't work for sponsors. Uh, people who listen to this podcast decide it exists, and it does. To become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, and thank you very much to everybody who has become a supporter already. Go on iTunes, give us ratings, reviews, and the like. That helps other people discover the show. I am on social media facebook.com slash weird history podcast i'm on twitter at joe streckert thank you very much for listening talk to you next week bye 